This week's episode is brought to you by Fairy Godmother Travel. Contact them today and they'll send you anywhere in the world that there's a Disney theme park. They love doing that stuff. Email them at communicorweekly at fairygodmothertravel.com and tell them we sent you. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show in home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And we've been branching out a lot to look at other theme parks aside from Disney theme parks a lot lately. And we're going to continue that trend this evening by looking at a place that George has seen since its very beginning, its very inception. What? No, I haven't. Yeah, you have. Like the 1800s, oh, I, right? Oh, the swan boat time travel. That's right. Oh, I wasn't referring to that. See, but if, if that's what you want to go with, we oh, can go because with because how old I am. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah, I helped Johnny Appleseed plant a lot of those trees, too. He did. He did, guys. Yeah. Back in my days, it was, we rode T-Rexes to school, too. It was awesome. It was amazing. Now, let's all sit back and listen to podcasts just like George does do in the Pilgrim Days <laughs> by Candlelight. <laughs> it's time for the Park Back in episode 180, we discussed the history of Coney Island and how it was the genesis of so many amazing amusement parks in the 19th and 20th centuries. Now, the name Coney Island was so well associated with amusement parks that many other parks across the country chose Coney Island as their name to try and cash in on that publicity. For this theme park history, we're going to take a look at a little theme park near Cincinnati, Ohio that has become one of the most visited seasonal parks in America. And, you know, this park has a special place in my heart since I did grow up in Cincinnati and visited frequently before moving to North Carolina. Of course, we are talking about Cedar Fair's Kings Island, located outside Mason, Ohio, but it's only been open since 1972. But even so, it has a much longer history when tied back to the original amusement park that birthed Kings Island. Coney Island. So let's jump into our swan boat time machine and head back to 1867. So about 10 miles from downtown Cincinnati, James Parker purchased a 400-acre apple orchard on the shores of the Ohio River. And a few years later in 1870, some Cincinnatians rode their horses to the farm and inquired if they could rent the land for a private picnic. They had also planned to charter a steamboat to bring their group to the orchard. Now, just like the advent of parks at the end of uh, trolley lines, this steamboat line, so to speak, would take on a greater significance in a few years. So Parker started renting out his land more often and built a dining and dancing hall uh, in addition to a mule-powered merry-go-round. We could have used mules for the swan boat time machine. We, I mean, it would be manual labor for them, but it might work. Yeah, that's true. Okay, so Parker also started planting maple trees as the apple trees died out. The area became a very popular picnic spot called Parker's Grove. So in 1886, the Ohio Grove Corporation bought the land for $17,500, uh, which was close to about a half a million dollars in today's numbers. Now, the Ohio Grove Corporation was headed by two steamboat captains, William and Malcolm McIntyre. Uh, obviously, they wanted to encourage ridership from Cincinnati to the Grove 
on their steamships. Now, like we said uh, in the beginning of the segment, many parks adopted the Coney Island uh, nomenclature to offer some built-in publicity. So on Jan- uh, June 21st, 1886, Ohio Grove, the Coney Island of the West, opened. Now, just like Parker's Grove, the park opened, uh, offered picnicking, dancing, uh, refreshments, and fireworks. And eventually, there would be 19 steamships that would make the 60-minute trip. The trip cost 50 cents and included admission to the park, and many also considered the hour-long trip to be one of the best parts of the day. The park became Coney Island in 1887 by dropping the Ohio Grove moniker. Two years later, in 1899, the Coney Island Company took over the park. The group purchased neighboring farms to increase the size of the park. In 1893, the group added one of the signature landmarks, Lake Como, named after the famous lake in Italy. It was created in a former cornfield and became the home for many of the first attractions like the Fun Factory, a wooden Ferris wheel, and an earlier simulator attraction known as Hales Tours. Now, on a side note, Hales Tours debuted at the 1904 St. Louis Exposition and would spread quickly across America and the United Kingdom. Basically, it was a stationary train car in which a panorama of images would rotate around the train car in order to simulate a railway journey. Now, staff would be on the outside rocking the car back and forth, while a wind machine and other sound effects helped uh, with the realism. Apparently, a lack of new films and the close quarters led to the decline in popularity of the ride. Sort of like the first Star Tours. Exactly. Mm. Just Tony Baxter was hanging out in the background, (laughs) just shaking the Star Speeder going. Just shaking the Star Speeder. Hey, guys! (laughs) (laughs) So Coney Island also boasted one of the first movie theaters in the area. Uh, And in the first year of the 1900s, the T.M. Harton Company built a carousel and a figure eight roller coaster. Now, in the second decade, they also built the Dips the Dip roller coaster and added the Little Dipper the following year. But 1913 would signal a terrible and ongoing issue for Coney Island. Now, in earlier episodes, we discussed how dangerous fires were to parks like Steeplechase, Dreamland, and Pacific Ocean Park. Depending on the amount of damage, many parks just never reopened after a destructive fire. But fire wasn't the only hazard. In 1913, the Ohio River flooded and caused a lot of damage. And it wouldn't be the last time that the Ohio River would cause trouble. Also, competition developed much closer to the city by a trolley park called Chester Park. Although the actual, you know, Chester Park wouldn't exist much after 1932 or so. In 1918, one of Coney Island's boats was destroyed by ice flows, and the three thrill rides, the Dip the Dips, Little Dipper, and Figure Eight, were all removed. The 1920s were very significant uh, for the park. The Skyrocket, a roller coaster built by John Miller, was added in 1921. Uh, The park's ownership was then transferred to J.J. Hubbard of Pittsburgh, but then he sold it in 1924, to Coney Island, Inc., which was run by George Schott, a very familiar name to Cincinnatians today. George Schott and his brother Edward would make significant changes to the park and establish a a level of maintenance practically unheard of until Disneyland, and they also did create one of the largest amusement parks in the country. They would add the now-famous entrance, as well as the Jack and Jill slide, the Zoomer, which was a propeller-driven monorail, uh, bumper cars, a turnpike, a Noah's Ark, and one of the first dedicated kiddie lands ever that included a merry-go-round, train, and airplane swings. And it was reportedly built for the owner's grandkids. But one of the biggest additions would be to replace the Island Queen, a riverboat that had burned in the 1922 season. Now, most people still traveled to Coney Island by riverboat, and the owners knew they, they needed to keep it going. 
So the new Island Queen would be a landmark for the park. It could carry 4,000 people per trip and measured 300 feet long and 80 feet wide. Now in comparison, the Mark Twain at Disneyland is only 105 feet long. The Island Queen had five decks with a refreshment counter, lots of them, a ballroom, a bar, a souvenir stands, a cafeteria, and a squeal arcade. Now, George, I really want to know, what is a squeal arcade? I really want to know as well. All of my super librarian powers turned up nothing. What? Exactly. They failed you? They failed me. So if anybody knows what a squeal arcade is, please call us or email us and let us know. Okay, so, but as for the park, they contracted with the Philadelphia Toboggan Company to construct the Moonlight Gardens, which was a dance hall, and the Sunlight Pool, which still holds many world records today. It was 200 by 401 feet, held 3 million gallons of recyclated, recirculated water, and went from 6 inches to 10 feet deep. And it could also hold up to 10,000 people at a time. You know, I don't want to be in a pool with 10,000 other people. Me neither. I'm sorry. So two coasters from the Philadelphia Toboggan Company were also added. The Wildcat, a double out and back coaster, and the Twister, which was a small coaster totally enclosed. Uh, then they added a three-row carousel, uh, two fun houses, a Bluebeard's Castle and Devil's Kitchen, two water rides, a tumblebug, which would be moved to King's Island, and Custer cars. In 1935, George Schott passed away, and his brother Edward and his son-in-law Ralph Wax took over. So, as we mentioned earlier, the Ohio River added to the success, the success of Coney Island, but also caused no end of troubles. Although the flood of 1937 would be one of the biggest, submerging Coney Island 28 feet underwater, it would also be a blessing, combined along with the Great Depression. Carousel horses became unglued, buildings collapsed, lumber for a coaster was washed away, the sunlight pool was filled with mud and debris. Um, the board of directors met three times to see if they would actually rebuild. And ultimately, the cheap labor from the Great Depression allowed them to rebuild Coney Island, but only better. Almost all of the buildings were built with an Art Deco masonry style with steel foundations. They added the Philadelphia Toboggan Company coaster called the Clipper. In the mid-1940s, after making it through World War II, the park replaced the Clipper with the very popular Shooting Star Coaster. The park also included a Mirror Maze, Rocket Ships, Tumblebug, Dodgem, uh, Laugh in the Dark, The Whip, a Wildcat, Lost River, <laughs> Flying Scooters, Ferris Wheel, Cuddle Up, Caterpillar, Boats and Canoes, and Eight Kitty Rides in the Land of Oz. That is a lot of stuff. Yes, it is. So, one of the first connections to Disney would actually happen in the 1950s. Coney Island was known across the country for its attention to detail, its intricate landscaping, and its high levels of maintenance. Walt Disney visited Coney Island to get ideas for Disneyland. He actually wrote the park for a, ch a check for $1 for consulting services. Um, in the 1960s, over $2.5 million was spent that included adding a short-lived motorboat ride and a steam-powered train that traveled almost a mile. 1964 saw another major flood, and the park was covered by 14 feet of water. Obviously, this made the current owners, including Gary Waxon Ralph, to look for another piece of property outside of Cincinnati. In 1968, an announcement from Fess Parker, yes, Fess Parker, the star, the star of Disney's Davy Crockett, uh, caused a panic among the owners of Coney Island. 
Fess wanted to open a major theme park in northern Kentucky, close to the intersection of I-71 and I-75. Fortunately, it fell through, but it got the walks uh, thinking big for the Coney Island replacement. While trying to get enough capital to build a new park, the walks realized that they needed a new partner with deeper pockets. In 1969, Coney Island was purchased by Taft Broadcasting, who also happened to own the Hanna-Barbera characters um, for a price tag of $6.5 million. They also added an Aero log flume coaster that increased the park's popularity. Uh, it was announced in 1971 that it would be the final season of Coney Island before the $29.5 million theme park opened in Kingsmill, Ohio. Over 2.75 million people visited uh, Coney Island during its announced final season. Many of their rides were moved to Kings Island, with many of them still in operation today, while several were demolished, including the Shooting Star, the Teddy Bear, and the Lost Delta. Taft wasn't sure what to do with the park, and they left many buildings intact, including the Sunlight Pool. In the spring of 1972, just before Kings Island was set to open, the Ohio River flooded Coney Island again. So Taft was unable to sell Coney Island, so they decided to reinvest in it. The Sunlight Pool still saw close to 100,000 visitors that year, well shy of the million a year before. So Taft added private tennis club and picnic groves, and people started returning, and Taft renamed it Old Coney. They added more kiddie rides, paddle boats uh, on Lake Como, and a miniature golf course. In 1984, the park donated 15 acres to the Cincinnati Symphony Orchestra, and famed architect Michael Grave designed the $9 million Riverbend Music Center, which included drainage that went back to the Ohio River, which is good for flooding, um, <laughs> a sound system built above the 100-year flood level. They even removed the wooden stage floor every winter. 1985 saw the name change back to Coney Island, and many kiddie rides were removed to make way for additional parking, an outdoor dance hall, and the maintenance buildings. Great American Communications bought Taft and Coney Island in 1987. They felt that Coney Island wasn't Coney Island without rides and began to add them, uh, clustering them around Lake Como instead of along the old mall area. In 1989, Coney Island was purchased by Cincinnati businessman Ronald Walker for $3.8 million. It was hit by another flood that year, but Walker spent $2.5 million to improve the sunlight pool and the bathhouses, uh, bath and he also added a scrambler. So over the next uh, few years, over a million dollars was spent in acquiring new rides, including a Tilt-A-Whirl, the Skyfighter, uh, a Trabant, a Roundup, Flying Bobs, not Flying Bob Around Boats, um, a helicopter, <laughs> and the unique Spinnery ride. I don't know what that is. Um, there was another major flood in 1997, the worst one in 30 years, in which the water rose 14 feet over the stage. Still, they added a merry-go-round that season also. And in 1999, the steel coaster, the Pepsi Python, was added. So over the past 10 years, more than $2 million was spent to add a drop tower, a Coney's Kids Town, bumper boats, the Como Cruisers, and Wipeout. The park is still in operation today and still continues to add attractions and attract visitors from throughout the region. It's one of the rare amusement parks that was able to bounce back from at least four major floods, the Great Depression, and two world wars. I mean... It's pretty obvious that Coney Island was an obvious influence for mm -hmm. Walt Disney when building Disneyland, and it still stands as one of the most respected amusement parks in the entire country. It's got a lot of history behind it, which we love. Yes, it does. I think we were both surprised when we started researching and looking into it. Um, but we would love to know if you ever got a chance to visit the Coney Island of the West. 
located outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. Give us a call on the CommuniCore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his speech. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is The Forever Man, Warp 3 by Eowyn Colfer. So we're both huge fans of Eowyn Colfer uh, ever since he started writing his Artemis Fowl series. And I know we've covered a few of his books here on the show. Um, we also both love the first two books in his Warp series and couldn't wait to tackle the third book in the series, which I mentioned is called The Forever Man. Uh, but do we really need to say anything other than time travel? You know, I mean, obviously, that's a big draw for us. We love time travel. Um, but to be honest, I mean, based on the description and the setting of the book, <laughs> I honestly thought I was going to hate it. I'm not I'm not going to lie. Mm-hmm. So, you know, imagine my surprise when it wound up being my favorite entry of the entire series. Um, the Warp books have always really taken these really strange and weird turns, but Kofor apparently saved the best for last. Okay, so the premise of the Warp series is that the FBI has access to time travel. So they send key witnesses back in time, which is the witness relocation program, basically. So each witness is provided with FBI protection that keeps the witness safe until they're needed for a trial. And in earlier books, we meet Riley, a young stage magician's assistant, his boss, so to speak, uh, another person, and Chevron, who's a member of a teenage FBI program, which is still kind of weird, but then we're talking about time travel, so, oh well. Uh, the first two books are full of great time travel stories and a perfect amount of suspense, but I wasn't prepared for how good The Forever Man would actually be. Yeah, I mean, even if you didn't read the first two books, there isn't really a need to. Um, there's this brief <laughs> and hilarious recap at the start of this book that really brings you up to speed immediately. It, like tells you everything you need to know, mm-hmm. basically what George just said, what the book's about. <laughs> and soon after that, you know, our heroes of the book are reunited with Garrick, uh, a person they would rather not see ever again and whom they thought was long dead. Um, however, you know, in the series of the books, the time vortex is a funny place. And not only is he alive and well, but he's also more powerful than ever. And he was just biding his time until he could seek his revenge on his former assistant. Yeah, Colfer is an amazing storyteller. The first book does a great job of making you feel like you're in Victorian slash industrial London. And the second book really brings the story and the characters into some dastardly yet very humorous situations. And the third book really feels like you're watching several motion pictures at once. Uh, There are many dramatic and climactic scenes throughout the whole novel, and each one really feels like it could have been its own story, uh, which was truly impressive. And it all takes place during the height of the witch trials. And, you know, the way the characters were integrated into history made perfect sense and almost felt at home in their new settings. And, you know, George George is right. There were several set pieces that happened that really could have been expanded upon and made into their own story. Um, But they were all here in this one place. And despite all of them being, like, kind of jumbled together, it never once felt like we were shortchanged either. They never felt out of place. They all were perfect. Yeah, not at all. So, uh, as we mentioned in our previous reviews of of Colfer's works, it never feels like these books are solely aimed at uh, tweens and teens. Uh, e- even though we might not act mature all the time, we still, you know, enjoyed these books and his Artemis Fowl series. You really should read those um, as 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 adult readers. And 
once you add in the time travel and historical accuracy, you've got a great read. I mean, really, the book and overall the entire series is for anyone who really just likes smart writing that doesn't dumb down the science stuff and then also doesn't skimp on the jokes either. Um, I really thought The Forever Man was a great way to close out the series, if the ending is to be trusted. And it's a nice read for kids, you know, basically of all ages. Yeah, you know, I'm just wondering if there's any way we can get Colfer to write another, you know, 25 or 30 books for this series. I mean, if the warp technology is real, I'm sure we can convince him somehow mm-hmm. or another and just have him, like, set in between other books. But then we might run into Garrick. Well, but now we know how to defeat him, thanks to this book. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Wow. Okay. Well, I guess we'll both highly recommend this one then, right? Heck yes. Yeah. Okay. So this week's book was The Forever Man, which is book three of the Warp series by Owen Coffer. What we liked, what we didn't like, he's in the booze. 60-second review. So we've got two releases to talk about this week. Uh, The first one is Inside Out which I know we had a review earlier from Captain Leo, but we're going to talk about the Blu-ray. So um, I'm one of those weird people in my circle of friends that hasn't been completely enamored with every Pixar film. And I know I know a lot of people are mad and angry at me, but sometimes the movies just haven't clicked with me. Like, uh, it's usually a shock when people find out that Finding Nemo and WALL-E are two of my least favorite films <gasps> from Pixar. I know. I know. So uh, it's it's why I still have trouble when I think about Inside Out. Part of me really, really liked me, uh, liked it <laughs> and, and myself. Uh, and part of it just really didn't like the film that much, you know? I mean, I understand. You know, Pixar films have always really tugged at the heartstrings to me. And even the ones that I just didn't fully connect with. Um, you know, that said, there are plenty of people that adore everything they put out. And rightfully so. However, much like George, I felt the same way when it came to Inside Out. Yeah, I saw it in the theater with my boys and the inimitable Captain Leo. And my youngest son liked it so much, he saw it a second time. And Captain Leo, you know, raved about the film and reviewed it for us. And I'll admit, it is beautifully animated, if not the most beautifully animated film. And it's so close to photorealism that the backgrounds and props really look amazing. But something left me a little sad. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, You know, the visuals of the film are gorgeous. They're really top-notch and other adjectives that I can't think of right now. (laughs) And, you know, Pixar never fails with that stuff. They're always really the head of their game. And I even really uh, really enjoyed Pixar's look at the human emotions. Um, It was kind of fascinating to see how things could be governed in our brain, you know, how they thought of it. But at the end of the day... Joy, you know, one of the lead emotions, is still an island surrounded by four other negative emotions in our collective heads. And for some reason, that just really (laughs) bummed me out. So, yeah, you know, the voice casting was amazing, you know. But I wondered if the film was too heavy, maybe for a lot of people. You know, I was really, really glad that Pixar chose to look at depression uh, and sadness or, you know, any time that a mental illness or a disorder can be brought to the forefront. That's really important. Still, you know, it seemed a little formulaic. You know, I I remember a meme I saw on the internets that looked at the Pixar films. It was like, you know, Toy Story, your toys have emotions. You know, Bugs Life, insects have emotions. Finding Nemo, fish have emotions. Cars, your car has emotion. And finally, inside out, your emotions have emotions. (laughs) All of the emotions. (laughs) Um, Yeah, at the end of the day, you know, it's a Pixar film and it's a hit. People love it and it tells a pretty heartwarming story. 
I was very surprised, however, by the overwhelming amount of extras mm. uh, that came with the disc. So much so they had a whole separate disc to contain those extras. And, you know, <laughs> I've said this a million times on the show, and I'll say it again. I am obsessed with this stuff. And they, the yes. fact that they included so much is a great thing for me because Pixar always delivers on the extras. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to remind everybody, if you get the Blu-ray and you get your Disney Movie Anywhere copy, there are extra bonus scenes just for Disney Movie Anywhere people. Yes, there is. Yes, there is. So, but, you know... You know, we're not trying to bash the film, but it still wasn't my favorite. But the extras were really good, as Jeff mentioned. There are several in-depth scenes with Pete Docter, and, you know, many of the cast and the crew that created the film are there talking about it. And it was very eye-opening, especially after having read so many books about the early years of Disney animation, that, you know, making a CGI-based film is just as difficult and time-consuming as traditional hand-drawn animation. Yeah, and, I, and to me, it's always interesting to, like, get a look at Pixar's process. You know, it's always a treat for me, mm -hmm. and they never skimp in that area. So getting to see every aspect of the film, you know, from the initial concept to the animation to the music, it's just a great peek behind the, the Pixar curtain. Mm -hmm. And it never really ceases to amaze me how much love and heart goes into the creation of the films and, and how much fun they all seem to be having making it. So, you know, Lava and Riley's Date were both wonderful shorts to have on the disc, so I was so glad they were included. Um, Riley's date is kind of cute. It takes us back into the minds of the people from inside out and brings some new insight into the characters. And of course, Lava is a beautiful Hawaiian tale that moves me every time I see it. Yeah, just that song and you know the the ukulele. I have a dream. It's gonna get stuck in your head for days anytime I'm you watch it, and rightfully not to so. Sing it right. It's now. so good. I know it is. Um, I know it but is. But at the end of the day, if you're a Pixar fan, you yeah. can't go wrong with this disc. It's packed with extras, and it will be definitely a good purchase for you. Yeah, but Jeff, now you got something else to talk about. Yes. Um, so I received a copy of, of Toy Story That Time Forgot. I don't know why George didn't, so I'm just going to be doing the talking now. It, it's Toy Story, the DVD that forgot George. That's that's true. That's that's the, that's the extra on the disc right there. <laughs> um, so it just came out on Blu-ray. Um, it originally aired around Christmas 2014 as a TV special, and it was like 22 minutes. And to me, it was a lot of fun. Um, you know, it can obviously continues the adventures of Woody and Buzz and the gang in a very short form, which, after how Toy Story 3 ended, should be how it goes and not with another film, but that's neither here nor there at this point. <laughs> um, so this bite-sized adventure shows the gang meeting the latest Christmas craze, the Battlesaurs, um, at one of Bonnie's friends' house. And Trixie and Rex kind of come to the forefront here, obviously, because they're dinosaurs, and the, the, the Battlesaurs get them suited for war. And then they have to convince the Battlesaurs that they're not actually battling dinosaurs, but toys. And, you know, when you think about it, it's obviously a rehash of the plot from Toy Story with Woody trying to convince Buzz. But in this short 22-minute form, it works beautifully with the Battlesaurs. And it's adorable. I really liked it. Um, <laughs> you know, there's also a bunch of extras on the disc, including a behind-the-scenes look at that, you know, that's about as half as long as the feature itself. Um, there is a Comic-Con featurette where the cast talked at Comic-Con. There's a karaoke thing. There is a super sweet 80s-inspired Battlesaurs cartoon <laughs> opening, which is incredible and makes me wish it was a real, real show. Um, a handful of deleted scenes and, of course, uh, audio commentary. So th this was another really good disc, I th especially for the holiday season. It's a cool little holiday tale, I think. Awesome. So definitely pick up the toy story that time forgot. That forgot George, yes. Yes, and pick up Inside Out, because it really is good. Yeah. It really is fantastic. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. 
So over in Disney's California Adventure, they semi-recently just redid Condor Flats into the amazingly gorgeous Grizzly Peak Airfield. Now, <laughs> despite having a terrible attraction in the land itself, it did open itself open to more opportunities for five-legged goats. Um, there's a new rest stop area which sells souvenirs and snacks for those of you on the road, and also has some tips for the hikers. Now, just outside the rest area, there's a map um, that's outside, and it has some of the trails in the area, one of which is named the Bullwhip Griffin Trail. Now, this is a nod to the old live-action western made by Disney entitled The Adventures of Bullwhip Griffin, starring Rowdy McDowell, Suzanne uh, Plachette, and Carl Malden. And just a quick shout-out to Cadet Chris M., because this was on my list, and he emailed me about it the other day, because I, I <laughs> assume he just recently saw it. So I was like, ah, let's use it on the show. So thanks, Chris, for bringing that one back up to the forefront. That's a great one. I love yeah. any tie back to old animated features and yeah. old films as well. Have you seen that yes. film? Oh, gosh, yeah, it's been forever, though. Jeez. I remember seeing it when I was a kid and I liked it. Well, that was only, what, like five years ago? Yeah, yeah. Maybe? So, Maybe? I mean, okay. never mind. I'm, I'm done with the old jokes. Anyway, yeah, we speaking had no of... Sieg for this week, right? Uh, so. Yes, yes, I hit my <laughs> quota. Um, so now we're, we're at the end of the show, obviously, and it's time for the Year of a Million or So. Limited Time Cadets prize winner. Don't forget, you can still enter to win one of our many, many prizes. Just send us your name, your mailing address, and your birthday to CaminoCrowWeekly at gmail.com, and we will put you on the list. And this week's prize pack uh, is a Disney prize pack from Fairy Godmother Travel. And the winner is Martha J. from Huntersville, North Carolina. Oh, that's awesome. So, so it's by you. You could just wave know, to George. Have George take your picture when you receive it. Next time I drive to Carowinds, I could go down and drop it off. Heck yes. Heck yes. Yeah, and then ride Fury 325 and the Intimidator and Afterburn. You're just... And- Excited about all these coasters, aren't you? Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay, well, I, you know, I guess it's time for us to end the show. Right, so, guys. thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a rating on iTunes, leave a comment on YouTube, wherever you listen to the show. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, and email us, as we've mentioned plenty of times, at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to enter the contest, say sup, Corey, or just tell us how awesome we are. You can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagineerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And you can also call us on the Communicor Weekly goat line at 424-785-4628. Yes, we're still collecting voicemails. We'll play them <laughs> on episode 4000. Wow. So, we, okay. I we guess have we're skipping time. a few? Okay. So uh, make sure you visit communicorweekly.spreadshirt.com where you can flush on your own terms. Get a Hatbox Ghost shirt and show your Communicore Weekly love proudly. And if you want your official cadet membership card or a Communicore Weekly sticker, sticker, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And visit patreon.com slash Weekly to find out how you can support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Come on, too.